Hi, everyone, and welcome to Work the Quirk, a podcast about behavior and interesting things that we see in society coming from four guys who don't have any background in psychology, but are just interested in why things actually occur that way. Today, I've got with me Ben. Hey, hey. Brendan. Peace. Sa. What's up? And myself, Alan, who is your host. And today, what I might do is just throw it to anyone who might have seen anything. Hey, Alan, I'll start it off. I've got like an interesting story that I've noticed with my little cousin. He was drinking from his milk bottle and he was sculling it, drinking it and going, oh, cheers, yum, beer. I thought that was a bit weird. I was like, what's going on? Where has he got this behavior from? Like, I know that. His dad, which is my uncle, he likes to drink a lot. So I'm a bit concerned on why this behavior is occurring. Any ideas, guys? You know, Ben, that sounds a lot like observational learning to me. And observational learning occurs when you see someone's behavior and you watch it, you memorize it, and then you mimic that behavior. And there are four stages of observational learning that occur, and it begins with attention, where the observer pays attention to another person's behavior. So your nephew would be paying attention to your uncle's behavior. Then retention, where your nephew stores that behavior in their memory. Then they reproduce that behavior, or it's called production, and your nephew acquires the skills needed to reproduce the behavior. So grabbing the the bottle and, and bringing it to their mouth. And then the last one is motivation, where your nephew finds a reason to reproduce that behavior. That's a very interesting point. I wonder how it works. So what I've learned, and neurologically speaking, it's the mirror neurons doing its job here. And apparently it's a very primal thing to do. Uh, that's how we survived in the jungle, or that's how our forefathers survived in the jungle. But you know, the saying monkey sees and monkey do. So it's uh, exactly that. We survived by looking at different animals, how they eat, how they find their food, how they jump from one tree to another. And you'd be surprised, it's still prominent to this day. We are watching Olympics now nowadays and we when we see someone doing stuff, something, we're like inspired to replicate it in the gym. So it is happening. But I'll give a sense of caution here. It can be dramatic at times when we look at and try to emulate celebrities like, uh, you know, the famous uh, Instagram star Dan Bilzerian. He has billions of followers and he has, he's known for his lavish lifestyle with big yachts and a lot of girls around him. And people are idolizing that guy and trying to emulate him so that they can achieve the same results. And it can be dangerous if they do it blindly. It's interesting that you mentioned that, uh, particularly because with Dan Bilzerian, you were saying that they, he has a lavish lifestyle and he certainly has a lot of money. And the interesting thing there is that viewers correspond to their aspired social class rather than their current objective status. And so the reason why Dan Bilzerian has such a large following is because people aspire to that sort of lavish lifestyle and, you know, don't really associate themselves to their current objective status when they're looking or observational learning has an impact on them. Yeah, I don't think it's always negative though, I guess. Like if you think about that scenario, you're talking about people aspiring to a lifestyle that one, they may not be able to attain or two, you know, you may not see as morally you know, right. But in essence, like you can also see observational learning as changing the way that, you know, our sports or other things work. So as an example, in the NBA, we've seen the big change from, you know, taking two point shots to being the three point game. Um, but Steph Curry over the past sort of 10 years has actually changed the game. And um, that comes 
both because you know it seems to be more efficient, so there's there's science and there's maths behind it, but also Alan, as you said before, there's motivation. He's winning, his team's been winning, and therefore other teams have started you know observing and actually learning from that and now mimicking that behavior, um, and it has resulted in more you know positive outcomes, you know championships in the NBA. Um, but what's really super interesting is actually that it took someone like Steph Curry, who wasn't actually mimicking or copying anyone to actually change that game. He, he did something very different from what was in the past. Um, and I think it, t- it takes someone like that to revolutionize the game. Yeah, this reminds me of the book I'm reading right now. It's David versus Glad by Malcolm Gottwell. And he talks about how certain disadvantage becomes your advantage and biggest advantage and that how it results in changing the industries. So taking an example of a small company in the payment space, and it is revolutionizing how payment is being made nowadays. So we start doing something very different, very niche, and that becomes the new standard. Emulating something has a deep-rooted, not with just us, but with big companies and organizations. So it definitely has big uh, social consequences. I'm curious how it affects individuals by what we are exposed to nowadays. I think with social media, I feel people are influenced by what they see. I'm pretty sure alcohol consumption has increased by, you know, looking at your mates on Facebook, they're drinking, they're sculling, they're going on holidays, you know, going to Thailand, having shots. I think prior to social media, we weren't exposed to, I guess, alcohol and we were limited to like alcohol consumption to our inner circle. So we would only see, you know, our families drink when they're at a party or we see an alcohol store. But I feel like, you know, young exposed to alcohol. And I think that just comes down to, I guess, my little nephew. So now he's learning it from, I guess, my uncle and he's mimicking that. But once he gets, I guess, social media, Facebook, um, you know, TikTok, you, you see people drinking, people that he looks up to, they may be drinking. So I think it, it's having a negative effect, this observational learning on my nephew. What do you think, Alan? Well, it's interesting that you say that because the question then becomes what? why does your nephew start or what motivates your nephew to start copying or mimicking your uncle's behavior? And according to Bandura's research, there, there are a number of factors that increase the likelihood that a behavior will be imitated. So some of them in this particular example might include that we are more likely to imitate people who receive rewards for the behavior. So in your example, it might be that your uncle was praised a lot for well, for drinking when he was with his buddies. And so your nephew might see that as, as a positive reward. We're also more likely to imitate people we perceive as warm and nurturing. So obviously your uncle there would certainly suit that category. And we are more likely to imitate people who are in an authoritative position in our lives. And again, I think that your uncle would certainly qualify as that. So Under those conditions, it becomes more clear why your nephew would start mimicking that particular behavior. And I think, Ben, like we have to also look at the positive side or look at the other side of things, where really your nephew's probably also learning some really good behavior from your uncle or your grandparents, et cetera. So if I look um, in my own case, I've got a two-year-old nephew as well, and um, I can see them learning, you know, great manners. um, So, you know, positive behavior, saying thank you, saying please, uh, from their grandparents, from my parents, like their grandparents, as well as from you know other members of my family. So I think there's actually both positive and possibly you know challenging side to learning from others and and that observational behavior. And what I'd be really interested to think about more is actually do we actually observe and learn more as a child, or when we grow up do we continue to actually observe and learn? Um, because you know 
we always think about this as children, we learn faster, but you know, is that true? Yeah, I have a personal example here. Um, in my previous job, I have a manager and a manager's manager, like everybody do. And that guy, I was really bad at sales. And my, one of my responsibilities was to bring in new sales for the company. And I went to my manager's manager and told him like, you know, I don't think I'm right for this role. I, I, I'm not very good at it. My, my, whereas my manager was really good at his show up and he could get the new prospects and everything. So his suggestion to me was to observe the behavior of my manager and try to emulate him just uh, understand how he walks how he talks to people spend as much time with him so that i can you know something rubs off on me and it, it did happen after a couple of months i started learning his methods and tactics and i could i could see how i was learning by just you know being uh, around him so that was definitely an impact in my life so i i think we still do learn as an adult how we how to emulate. Right. I see. I can see how that's a positive impact on you. Yeah, so I guess observational learning, having discussion with everyone, it does come in negative and positive forms. I guess the key role here is trying to limit the negative influence it has and just increase the positive influence. So I might have to go have a little chat to my uncle about <laughs> observational learning and see what he can learn from it. Yeah, it's been an eye-opener. Uh, I just thought it was just negative, but yeah, there are positives, as you guys mentioned. So great to hear. All right. On to our second topic. I was reading a great article the other day about how a message in a bottle was found in Keao in Hawaii by a nine-year-old girl who was out on the beach on a Father's Day outing. After opening the bottle, they realized that the bottle had been thrown into the sea 37 years ago in July 1984, and had been thrown into the sea off the coast of Japan, a place called Choshi. That's over 4,000 miles at 6,000 kilometers as the albatross flies. And the fact that the bottle had been adrift for over 37 years is amazing. They opened the bottle and it actually said that it had come from an ocean current investigation from one of the high school clubs. And they sent it over there back to Choshi, Japan to see if the high school club uh, wanted to do anything with it. So we'll hopefully hear more about that soon. It really does make me wonder though, when and how humans started sending messages in bottles. Good question, Brendan. And I've read that the earliest example of a message in a bottle was from Greek philosopher Theophrastus. And it was saying that Theophrastus was an ancient Greek philosopher and scientist. And it said that he sent messages in a bottle as a way of testing his hypothesis that the Atlantic Ocean flows into the Mediterranean. It was said that the first messages in bottles were sent around 300 BC, but unfortunately that story is sadly not true. So no one actually seems to know where the story came from, but there is no evidence to support it. However, what I do recall seeing is that a message in a bottle that read from Titanic, goodbye all, Burke of Glenmire, Cork, was found washed ashore in Dunkettle Island back in 1913. So that's a pretty early example, but closer to home, a Perth family also actually found Found a message in a bottle almost 132 years after it was thrown into the sea. It's pretty remarkable, I feel. And some of the other reasons why messages in bottles are actually sent include advertising. For instance, Guinness, they did some advertising to send the product itself to countries that they were aiming at. And I believe that they sent 200,000 messages in bottles back in the 1950s to see if they could actually reach the countries that they were targeting with their advertising. But I think that some of the more interesting reasons 
reasons why people send messages in bottles is as a form of confession. And also some people send messages in bottles because they want a pen pal, for instance, or to say goodbye to loved ones or even to send their loved ones on a final journey. I can tell you from an Indian culture perspective, after somebody dies, we burn the body and send the flow the ashes in the sea or the river. And usually we put some message with that, like any last words that we wanted to send to that deceased person. And it is a way to express grief, express, say the final words which were left unsaid. So it's a definitely a need to communicate with somebody who is gone and who is lost in time or space. And uh, this is a self-coping mechanism in, in certain ways. But I, I can believe that people also do it for love reasons. Uh, there is a level of uh, mystic uh, or exotic mystery in, in finding loved ones through message in the bottle. So I, I really like that idea. It actually reminds me, sir, about a funny story that I read where this guy in England was planning on dropping 2,000 messages in bottles into the ocean, hoping that they would travel around the world and help him find like a romantic partner. Unfortunately, like quite a few of them washed up on a local beach. And he received a lot of public backlash around it being litter and possibly harming locals, like if the bottles were crushed and there was glass on the beach and also salmon um, that grew in their waterways. I think it definitely shows that, you know, there are a lot of people who think of that romantic side of message in a bottle and that sort of building a connection with others through sending a message. And it definitely aligns with human need to communicate and build relationships. Yeah, there's a cultural way to send physical message in a bottle. But now I believe it's evolved into the internet where people are talking to each other via social media, getting that interaction. But there are negative people taking, I guess, advantage of this, seeking that connection, sort of like the element in the bottle. For example, there's that Nigerian love scam. If no one knows about the Nigerian love scam, it's basically someone from Nigeria on the internet, just sending random emails for people that are desperate for that connection. And you read all these stories where they lose all their money because they think they're, you know, meeting up with the love of their lives. They promised all these stories. They send fake photos. And it's quite sad. It's just people being victims of this scam. I know that they send heaps of money and at the end of the day, you know, they're delusion. So that's kind of like a form of, you know, message in a bottle on a digital level. It's a very deep-rooted need. Once we launched our first satellite into the space, uh, Voyager 1, we sent a lot of uh, songs in it for any extraterrestrial life form to listen to it and know that it, it has come from Earth. And we sent a lot of uh, radio messages that we are broadcasting just in the air so that any, any life form anywhere in the galaxy who can hear us can, can know there is another person on the end and you know we can form a connection with them so it's a it's an interesting desire that all humans share totally reminds me so like i think they sent a cd up uh, with the voyager and they should have put that song you know the police song message in a bottle i really love how that song actually reflects what we've been talking about which is that loneliness that seeking connection side um and just some of the lyrics it says i'll send an sos to the world i hope that someone gets my message in a bottle And it's sort of talking about this guy who's lonely on an island and he's really seeking that human connection. And as it goes through the song, he's talking about how he falls into despair, how he's lonely. Um, And then he wakes up one day and he sees 100 billion bottles washed up on the shore. And he starts to realize that he's not alone. 
And I think that's something that is really interesting about messaging in a bottle is that it helps us as humans actually link back to seeking our human relationships with each other. And as you said, potentially finding another extraterrestrial life form that we can share our world with and our experiences with. Such an interesting topic there. And I think that one of the key things is that there is a universal theme of connection that the entire planet or the entire human race is seeking. And, you know, if, if that's the case, then certainly anyone out there who's listening to today's podcast, certainly reach out to us. You can reach out to us on our Facebook page, Instagram, and also our website. So certainly reach out when you can and look forward to hearing or seeing you guys again on our next episode. Thanks, everyone.